This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Now, Fight Back with Libby Snymer on Zoomer Radio with guest host... Jane Brown. Libby is taking a couple of days off. She will be back on Thursday. Today marks a change in leadership in Britain. Liz Truss has become the new prime minister after she was chosen yesterday as the next conservative leader by party members. And Boris Johnson has said his goodbyes both to the Queen and to those gathered outside 10 Downing Street. Let me say that I am now like one of those booster rockets that has fulfilled its function and I will now be gently re-entering the atmosphere and splashing down invisibly in some remote and obscure corner of the Pacific. And now, the Recovering Politicians Panel. Boris Johnson there, true to form. Our recovering politicians are David Peterson, former Ontario Liberal Premier, Lisa Raitt, former Federal Conservative Deputy Leader, and Sherry DeNovo, former NDP MPP and Order of Canada recipient. Hello, panelists. Have we got everybody on the line? Hello, yeah, hello. I'm here, I'm here, I'm here. Great, great. Okay, well, Liz Truss has always been a supporter of Boris Johnson. Some are even calling her Boris Johnson 2.0. So I will start with your impressions of the new British Prime Minister. David, to you first. Well, uh, I, I actually watch this with great interest. I mean, Boris Johnson, for all of his sins, and Lord knows he had many, was a very compelling communicator and uh, and had a wit that was uh, engaging uh, and it made I, I'm not suggesting for a minute he didn't have a multitude of sins both personal and 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 political I, I think his withdrawal from brexit uh, his brexit was a mistake of historic proportions he got, but he got in front of that, and he maximized it. Now let's say where we are. Liz Truss, I watch Liz Truss with great interest, because the, 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 the Prime Minister of Britain is very important to the world and to us. And obviously her Canadian connection is of, of, of great interest, and she said she's learned a lot about the world going to school in Canada for a year. But the truth is, I found her singularly uninspiring. I watched her speeches, and it was sort of the old rote. It was a, it was an old, uh, it was cliche written, and there was no magic in it. Boris at least had some magic, and I think, I think she's going to have a tough time getting beaten up in the Commons. The Commons, it's a very tough place to debate. Very high quality parliamentary debate by and large, and some very effective opposition politicians. And I think she's going to have a pretty tough time, particularly walking into a plethora of problems, including, you know, energy prices going up 80% in October and massive inflation and wildfires and environmental problems. I mean, it couldn't be, and the Brexit issues and the hangover from all of that, it's a plateful for anybody and you're going to need a lot of range, a lot of help, and a lot of inspiration to do it. You wonder if she is about to become the fall guy for the Conservative Party. Well, they're pretty tough on people, you know. Uh, you know, this is the fourth leader in, what, six years? Yeah. And when you can be removed by the Parliamentary Caucus, now with the Tories here have, at least would be, have much more insights into that than I would here, but... Um, it's a tough world, and uh, uh, who knows if she's up to it. Well, let's go over to Lisa Raitt. So your thoughts about Liz Truss. So what I find interesting about the new prime minister is that she is a, she started life in politics as a liberal Democrat, and then she turned over into being a conservative later on in her life. 
So she's a bit of a chameleon. I think she has also changed a little bit from when she was supporting Boris Johnson to when she was running for the leadership of the Conservative Party. She came out a lot more right than than uh, Rishi Sunak, who is the former chancellor. And she definitely is talking about using intervention tactics in the market in order to deliver on people's energy bills. And I would just note this, that in her speech, she said something I thought was interesting. Usually politicians have these kind of broad motherhood statements. They're there, conservatives at least, are there to reduce your taxes, uh, grow the economy, and, you know, make life worth living. Hers has changed a little bit. It's still about reducing taxes. It's still about growing the economy. But specifically, she says that she's going to handle people's energy bills. And I guess what her team has figured out is that in an upcoming general election, the only thing people are going to care about is whether or not this conservative prime minister understood the strain they're under and did she deliver on reducing their exposure to these energy, these energy prices as right. a consequence of the war with Putin. So she gets a little bit of a tryout period, in fact. Yeah, she gets a total chance. I look at it like when Dalton McGinty left and Kathleen Wynne came in. Everyone thought, oh, that's it. She handed the poison chalice and she ended up winning. And I wouldn't count Liz Truss out and I wouldn't count out her willingness to utilize things that a, let me put a, um, let me, how do I put it, a more traditional conservative may yes. not necessarily utilize yes. in their, in their war chest. Sherry, what are your thoughts? I mean, as David mentioned, her speech was quite a throwback even to the Margaret Thatcher era. Well, I mean, if, if first of all, uh, I think there's, <laughs> I, I agree with David that, you know, Boris was amusing and entertaining, but I think what's far more important here are policies and and character. And, uh, and of course, the question mark is there. But uh, to, to Lisa's point, I mean, this is a woman who described her, par- her parents as left of the Labour Party. So she has already come from an interesting background, not only being a Liberal Democrat, she certainly can change her mind. I mean, we remember that she supported staying in the European Union and then changed to Brexit, right? Right. Uh, so that's not necessarily a bad thing. I mean, I don't think it necessarily shows a lack of principle. I think it shows flexibility and being able to move with the times. Uh, concern areas for me, of course, she's a conservative. I would never vote for her. <laughs> But, I mean, the other concern area for me are her ties to to big oil. And when she says she's going to handle the energy bills, which, of course, are outrageous and unaffordable, what does that mean? Does that mean more public ownership, more control over them, or does it mean huge tax breaks for big oil? If it means the latter, that's problematic, I think, from any progressive's point of view who cares about the climate crisis, which they certainly have over there, mm-hmm. and we have here too. The, the other concern that I have about her is, uh, is her unwillingness really in introduced to separate herself from kind of Trumpism, uh, you know, right-wing populism that, that of course, has a global uh, face as well. And so we'll see. I mean, she could be, she's quite a chameleon for sure. She could be anything. So, uh, you know, as somebody speaking from the progressive end of politics, I would say let's hope that she shifts progressive. Well, is that a good thing, Sherry, a person who is chameleon-like, who understands different points of view and is willing to change? Is that Absolutely. Right? That's, that's what I said. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. It's a good thing. Um, we hope. Uh, of course, it, it, it you know, again, um, depends on where she shifts to. So that would be my question. Well, you can change your policies, but when you keep changing your principles, it speaks to a different kind of a human being. And I think, uh, Sherry, you pointed out that she started off as a, as a and her parents were highly leftist, anti-nuclear people, and she was anti-Brexit, pro-Brexit, and it just... It seems she flies a flag of convenience. Now, maybe that's going to help her. And maybe just being a total pragmatist in this world is all that's required. But I do think, I do think the principle is admired. David, we're going to... Um, world. 
David Peterson, we're going to get you a better line there. You've, you're crackling quite a bit to the point where it's difficult to understand, so I'll let Zeev take care of that. You know, when you read about what Liz Truss is facing as the new British Prime Minister, it sounds very familiar to what's happening in Western nations around the world. She needs to confront the enormous tasks, including increasing pressure to curb soaring inflation. She needs to ease labor unrest and fix a health care system burdened by long waiting lists and staff shortages. And she's also dealing with the energy crisis, which we've been referencing. How much of what Liz Truss is facing in the United Kingdom, Lisa, is, is really reflective of everywhere in the world at the moment? I think um, what she's facing fundamentally comes down to energy and the cost of energy that feeds into inflation. And, and that really has to be the number one issue on her on her radar right now. And with Mr. Putin declaring that he's not going to open up the gas line until sanctions are lifted, which is extremely problematic, and OPEC cutting production, it's just going to get worse. So she is going to have to be thinking about this outside of market possibilities. So this is the case for government intervention in a market situation in order to make sure that the most vulnerable in her society aren't going to be disproportionately hurt. And it really is a wartime kind of fronting right now. And she's going to probably conceive herself as a, a wartime prime minister where she's going to have to make decisions that may not be popular but are for the benefit of her citizens and, quite frankly, the voting public for when the the next general election comes. So all of her thoughts are going to be around energy, um, I I would say, and how to make sure you're helping on the energy side without allowing inflation getting out of control. Right. Let's go back over to David Peterson and uh, allow him to finish his thoughts before we uh, get a wrap-up comment from Sherry. David, go ahead. Her her problem is that she has promised tax cuts in a traditional conservative way. She's got to deal with these massive energy prices, and whether you load them onto the, the, the rate base onto the taxpayer is another form of subsidy. And I can tell you, Ontario governments have gone through that for a while, and it ends up in disaster and and, and really uh, distort, serious distortions in the market and doesn't, uh, doesn't reach your climate goals. So it really is a complicated area to get involved in. But she's got these promises hanging out there in the context of debt that is almost the size of the GDP in uh, uh, in Britain. Massive debt problems. So look at what's happening financially here. The pound is that is, is I think, an historic low at dollar sixteen or so U.S. Um, their international markets have lost confidence in her and signaled that ahead of time. So you, I do not minimize these problems for one second. And I guess all you can do is plunge in here, and uh, since she's demonstrated flexibility of thought and principle, uh, try to solve these problems in as pragmatic a way as she possibly can. She's got a little time to do it before the party turns in on her. But nobody that I read is predicting a very long honeymoon here. Sherry, final comments from you on Liz Trust before we change topics. Well, just two things, really. Uh, one would hope that, you know, in light of, of Putin's threats and actions, and <laughs> that, that the message has gone out loud and clear to all governments to, to race to renewables. But So that's number one. But number two, I also think that, there's, I, I have to say it's somewhat amusing, you know, although there's nothing amusing about inflation, to know that this is a conservative government wrestling with higher inflation rates than we have here in Canada. Right. And yet I, I, I kind of hope somebody will speak to Pierre um, Poiliev about that. Well, that is a perfect uh, transition to our next topic, and we are speaking with our Recovering Politicians panel, Sherry DeNovo, Lisa Raitt, and David Peterson, all esteemed Ontarians and Canadians. Jane for Libby here on Zoomer Radio's Fight Back. And by the way, if you want to get in on any of the conversations, give us a call, 416-360-0740, or toll-free, 1-866-740-4740. This will 
will be the final time you folks join us on Fight Back before a new federal conservative leader is chosen in Canada on Saturday. In the final days before a leader is declared, what are the candidates engaging in since the ballots have been mostly mailed in? Lisa, I'll begin with you. They're preparing their speeches. I hope that there are speeches that are happening on uh, during the event because I know that we had them. But definitely they'll be preparing for the event. They'll be thinking about what they want to say. Um, they'll be positioning themselves. For those who don't think that they actually have a path to victory now, they'll be trying to figure out what behind-the-scenes conversations they can be having with the prospective new leaders and just trying to figure out what their own path is. And, and quite frankly, you know, figuring out what the caucus is, is uh, what they're, where they're going to be going and, and how, we're gonna, how we are going to see them come out in the next election. So I think that's what's going through everybody's mind right now. And in terms of the perceived front runners, uh, if Pierre is comfortable in that he is going to win, he's definitely having transition meetings. He's thinking about who his inner circle is going to be, how he's going to staff up, because uh, knowing him, he's going to hit the ground running without a question. And, and it's a really good opportunity because the federal cabinet is currently meeting and the federal caucus meets next week, uh, liberal, meaning the, the Liberal Party. And, you know, he'll be there to respond to whatever comes out of it. Right. David, what do you expect to happen in the final days here of the Conservative race? Well, it's all over but shooting, isn't it? I mean, it's uh, Pierre Polyam's going to win this thing. Um, now, if you're asking my opinion, this is a good thing for the Conservatives or a good thing for the country, I'll... Uh, I'm happy to explain my views. I, I think there's... Well, let's transition to that then. Well, uh, look, he's an enormously effective communicator. He's one of the most effective opposition politicians I have ever seen in my life. And in so doing, he appeals to a lot of people's baser instincts. Uh, I'm not saying he's Donald Trump, but he's not too many footsteps away from the same kind of appeal. To the same, to some of the same kind of people. Not everybody. I don't want to tire everybody the same brush. I think he's very good at institutionalizing grievance, uh, and he's very effective at, at at putting his points in in ways that people do understand. Um, you know, look, as a Canadian and as someone who's I'm 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 postpartisan now. Really, I've known John Charest for. I dealt with him when I was in business, uh, in the business, and I, I worked with him throughout Meech Lake. I worked with him when he was premier. I've actually worked with him post um, politics, and he's, in my opinion, an outstanding Canadian. But I think he's the kind of person that we should have. Now, people will say, "Well, you're you're a liberal, Peterson, and you like him because he's more liberal." Probably uh, because I think he's a sensible, reasonable well-motivated person that understands the country and doesn't want to bring division but wants to bring unity and use all his skills and is very effective so but so i say that well if i but it doesn't look like he's going to win so there's another branch of the conservative party who's going to speak loudly in this through their new leader and i think it sets up a whole different dynamic in this country um, when you get Polly up with a loud megaphone, because again he is effective, and uh, there's lots to criticize about the government, no question about that. But there are ways that bring this country together to do it, and the ways that don't. And I, I think the I don't like a lot of I, I'm not I'm sad about a lot of things I see in the country right now about uh, the divisions about the grievances, about the uh, the unrestrained voices. I mean, you just look at this conservative uh, 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 convention in, in uh, Alberta right now, and the things that responsible politicians are saying. And my God, it's antithetical to what we have historically believed in as, as Canadians. Right. So this is a hard world. And it's more divisions of geographic than I see. I see in Quebec. I see they're not separatists, but they're 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 moving in directions that are not 
uh, commensurate with the ways that we were, that we fought in this country. And I gave blood to try to keep this country together in a very difficult time during Meech Lake and the referendum. I don't see that in Alberta. It's hard to glue all this together. Well, and Sherry, if Jean Charest is the better choice as an alternative uh, to Justin Trudeau, the Conservatives have really played this wrongly in in bringing in Pierre Poliev because they clearly are not going to get all of Canada behind them in, in a way that Jean Charest perhaps could have. Uh, well, certainly the, the latest Ipsos poll seems to show that he's... Uh, uh, Polyev's dropped two points in two months, and only one in four Canadians, according to Ipsos, uh, hold him in a positive light. But, you know, polls. Um, on the plus side, uh, he's going to win, for sure. <laughs> There's no discussion, I think. Um, on the plus side, I think the, the wake-up call to the NDP and the Liberals is this that we have to get away from focus groups and high-priced consultants and do what he's been doing very effectively, which is grassroots organizing, literally community to community, you know, getting to know people, talking at the door kind of organizing, which we have drifted away from. So I think that's the wake-up call to all the other political parties on the spectrum. Um, is it frightening that he will win? I think it is. Uh, I think this is a move to the right, a move to a kind of Republican North Party, rather than the classic conservatives that we've all come to know and, and you know, become accustomed to in Canada. Uh, I, you know, there's all sorts of indications of that, you know, his closing up to the convoy, to people like Jeremy McKenzie from Diagolon. I mean, yes, it was just a meet and greet, but he didn't denounce him. Um, his failure to say something about the attack on Christian Freeland, which, let's face it, it is a de rigueur for any politician. When something like that happens to anybody, I don't care what your political stripe is, you stand up and say something. Uh, so these are all real concerns, um, conspiracy theory, you know, the embrace, bracing of conspiracy theories, you know, uh, people using terms like the Great Reset and stuff. This is right out of Trump's uh, playbook and right out of Republicans at their worst uh, south of the border. So, um, yes, I'm very concerned. I'm concerned about women's rights. Um, look what's happened in the States with the overturning of Roe versus Wade. I'm concerning about, concerned about 2S LGBTQ rights if he becomes uh, the leader and, and, you know, God forbid, <laughs> um, prime minister. So I think that, that it really is a call out now to every Canadian to get politically active because um, it's important that we vote. It's important that we speak up. And I don't think the majority of Canadians are, are with him on that. Sherry DeNovo, Lisa Raitt, David Peterson. Um, Sherry, you've gotten us into our next topic. Uh, President Joe Biden in the United States has been stumping a lot ahead of the midterm elections and has come out very dramatically against mega people, Make America Great Again, Trump supporters, Trumpies, all kinds of names. Let's talk about the strategy in that and how effective it will be when effectively you've got 50% of the country Republican and 50% Democrat. Lisa. <laughs> I would just, uh, I'm going to pick up on the last part of the conversation. I think the more that conser- the more that liberals and NDP tell each other that Pierre can't get elected nationally and let down their guard, the better it is for the conservatives because they'll take advantage of that, of that um, false, I think, comfort because I don't think that that's necessarily the way it's going to go. And, so and by, by the same token, you're saying this might happen uh, not so much in Biden's favor. Sure. Uh, yeah, pivoting to the Biden piece, I, I mean, I would point to the mistake that Hillary Clinton made with Trump um, and referring to the deplorables. And that just seemed to, in, you know, bring vigor to, to that movement that's behind Trump, which personally, I don't agree with and don't understand, quite frankly. But that all being said, it's not for me to make those decisions. But obviously, the the president has great advice, and they made a choice that for these midterm elections, he had to come out strong. And maybe it's not taking swings about Trump. Maybe it's taking swings about the the people who seem to be wanting to be Trump 2.0. And it's an interesting tactic. I, I'm looking forward to seeing how it plays out. Quite frankly, I, I can't speak for what made them take the decision, other than also propping up 
the president and making them look strong. Right. David, is there an opportunity here to grab Republicans who are more uh, progressive in, in their thinking? I hope so. Look, I, 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 it, it's very hard to equate the U.S. and Canada, and, 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 but there are certain similarities. And, and like the Republican Party and the Conservative Party here, I, I know... I know an awful lot of wonderfully decent conservative people that are that would. Say, I know a lot of uh, liberals that could easily be sort of moderate conservatives, and uh, who who don't believe in sowing division. And there, and I dealt with wonderful conservative people like Brian Mulroney, and you know. I don't expect him to comment on what's happening right now, or the Joe Clarks of the world, or some of these other people. But they went into this business of sowing division and appealing to people's worst angels. They were they were aspiring to higher things, and there are Republicans like that in the United States. The difference, the difference. I, when I look at the United States, I say Joe. And we can talk about his tactics and his strategy. But Joe Biden is a fundamentally decent human being, even his worst enemies, including like people like Lindsey Graham, would say he's one of the finest people on earth. And it is obvious that Donald Trump is one of the worst people on earth and 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 exploits everything. And so you so you ask yourself, where's all this coming from? I think. Biden was smart to take this on, and I think he can let the the the, the mean elements of and the the outlandish elements of the Republican Party destroy themselves. And for God's sake, if we can find some moderate people in the center on all sides, right. We're going to have a better, more peaceful world. Sherry, does that make sense for Joe Biden to change his approach and um, not be as um, soft or moderate in terms of how he lures voters in ahead of the midterm elections? Uh, absolutely. I'm with David on this. Uh, I, uh, my reaction to that speech, and I listened to all of it, uh, was about time. And uh, he did not attack all Republicans. He ta- attacked the MAGA movement uh, and Trump. And he was very careful to say uh, that he works with Republicans, and that's how he's managed to get things done. Um, so, uh, yes. Yeah. Thank you, Joe. Okay. Every, you know, I don't mean to interrupt, but every party has its crazies. You know, the NDPs have some crazy people, and the Liberals have some crazy people, and the Tories have some crazy people. For God's sake, don't let any of these parties go into the hands of the crazies. Regardless of uh, what name they fall under, we'll leave it there. Uh, And just before I let you all go, and as a transition to our next segment, Lisa, and I know Zeev spoke with you about this on the phone or in an email. I wonder what you make of the new report from the Alzheimer's Society in light of your husband, Bruce, living with Alzheimer's. I'm not surprised at all. Um, And I will say that, you know, I do a lot of advocacy in terms of making sure people understand that there's a lot of folks out there in their 50s and 60s with this disease. There's a lot. And every time I do some advocacy that reaches the public airwaves, I end up getting more people writing in to tell me their story. And it's it's actually a little terrifying because it's um, a part of society that's very quiet and we're not ready for it either in terms of employment or in terms of health care or even in terms of, of pension. And as a result, um, I'm really glad and I'm pleased to see the Alzheimer's Society coming out with a projection. You can prevent dementia by following healthy lifestyles, and there's lots of places that can, can talk to you about that. Um, but the, the reality is that Alzheimer's has no cure and has no mitigating drugs scenario that can be utilized in order to make it better. And for families out there, guys, you just, you just watched your loved one drift away, and it's really hard. Lisa, thank you. We've talked to you about it before. We will speak with you about it again. And uh, we do have a panel of doctors coming up to talk about the findings in the Alzheimer's Society of Canada report and how we can all reduce our risk moving forward. Thanks for your comments and for the half hour, as always.
Always. Thank you. Bye. Lisa Raid is the former federal conservative deputy leader. David Peterson is a former Ontario liberal premier. And Sherry DeNovo is a former NDP MPP and Order of Canada recipient. Fight Back's Tuesday Recovering Politicians panel. And coming up next, we will talk more about the Alzheimer report and what you can do to reduce your risk. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Fight Back with Libby Snymer on Zoomer Radio with guest host Jane Brown. Libby returns on Thursday. It's described as a wake-up call for Canadians. A newly released report from Alzheimer's Society of Canada reveals that more than a million people, more than a million people are forecast to be living with dementia by 2030. That's a 65% increase from 2020. And this forecast is expected to rise to 1.7 million Canadians living with dementia by 2050. But it doesn't have to be this way. And there are personal changes you and governments can make to bring those numbers down, according to the report's authors. And if you'd like to comment, if you are in the beginnings of dementia, if you have a loved one with dementia or Alzheimer's and would like to share your personal experience, it certainly adds uh, a real-life scenario to this report and the numbers. You can call in at 416-360-0740 or toll-free 1-866-740-4740. Joining us to discuss the findings and how to curb our risk of dementia and Alzheimer's, Dr. Saskia Sivananthan, Chief Research Officer at Alzheimer's Society of Canada, Dr. Sandra Black, Professor of Medicine Neurology at Sunnybrook Health Sciences Centre and the University of Toronto, and Dr. Bill Reichman, President President and CEO of Baycrest. Welcome to you all, doctors. Thank you. Thank you. Dr. Sivananthan, how did the report's authors come to these forecasts of a million dementia cases by 2030 and 1.7 million by 2050? So the report was actually two years in the making, and um, it uses a statistical um, model based on publicly available data from Statistics Canada. Um, And the way we we describe it, it's kind of like a simulation uh, video game that most people are familiar with. Um, Each Canadian is a simulated person in the model, uh, you know, and that means they have certain factors like their their age, um, whether they have a caregiver or not, and um, their any diseases that might be associated with them. And what the model does is then simulates them over time from 2020 through to 2050 and plays forward scenarios to look at what would happen if those people age. And that's where you're seeing those rising numbers going from just over half a million Canadians currently living with dementia to almost a tripling by 2050 to 1.7 million Canadians. So, Doctor, would it be fair to say that it is based on an aging population, this increase in numbers, that we will have more people older than younger? Yes. I mean, certainly one of the key factors that's driving um, that that trend moving forward are are aging Canadians and baby boomers in particular. Uh, and that's what we're seeing, though, as you'd see in the report, that there are differences across regions in Canada. And that's because the age structures in different provinces are different. But regardless, there's definitely a trend upward in terms of the number of people who will be living with the disease and, importantly, the number of caregivers who would have to be available to support them. Right. I think it says 690,000 full-time jobs would be the equivalent, right? That's right. Yes. Yeah. Right now, we're looking at about 235,000 full-time jobs, and that's a conservative um, estimate. Uh, And that's just because we don't have a lot of publicly available information on caregivers. Dr. Sandra Black, certainly if you'd like to comment on the report. uh, And also what I'd like to know from a science point of view, what happens in our brains that creates dementia and Alzheimer's? 
Well, as we get older, um, just like other parts of the body start to age in, in the brain, we have a tendency to accumulate certain proteins that might be there for some purpose, but as we age, they start to become kind of counterproductive. Um, the two proteins that were identified by Alzheimer's in 1906 were um, uh, amyloid in, in plaques. They're called plaques and tangles. Amyloid has been identified just in the last you know, 20 years right. uh, or so in the plaques, and tau is in the tangles. And so now we know what the proteins are, and then there's some other um, less common disorders. And also we know that vascular um, health is very important. The, the health of your arteries and venules are really, arterioles and venules are very important to the development of this as time goes on, and they age with aging. And that's why um, vascular health and lifestyle choices are so important in trying to preserve um, the brain's health as you age. But um, we do have a, a kind of a new era, I think, unfolding because now we are going to be able to measure some of these important proteins with blood tests. But we can talk about that in a moment. Sure. Just what happens is that you start to get network dysfunction in the various parts of the brain, often starting in the memory area in particular, and then it sort of moves through different areas of the brain affecting language and navigation skills and, you know, kind of decision-making uh, and you end up with um, a syndrome where the person is no longer capable of independent living. That's called dementia. But there's a prodrome of many years where it's called like mild cognitive impairment, where the person is still cognitively, uh, I mean, having started with memory problems, but they're still actually managing their day-to-day activities. And so there's opportunity to intervene before people become demented. Interesting. Dr. Bill Reichman, you're seeing this firsthand at Baycrest, obviously. Yes, that, that's for sure. And I think what Dr. Black uh, just said is just so critically important. And that is, uh, over the last several years, we've entered an era where it's become much clearer to us that um, at least 40% uh, or so of dementia cases can be delayed or, or prevented through modifiable risk factors. And uh, that's a good news story, mm-hmm. which then compels us uh, to pay more attention to public health campaigns, helping uh, our communities to understand what at the individual and societal level we can do to mitigate or lessen uh, the risk of dementia and its impact on families and on our healthcare systems, as well as our, our overall economy. So um, I am optimistic that with the right kind of investments uh, in a thoughtful, disciplined public health campaign, uh, as we've done with smoking cessation and cancer, as we've done in the past with childhood vaccination, we can help people to understand that dementia does not have to be an inevitable consequence of growing old, and that in midlife and perhaps earlier, there are steps we can take as individuals and collectively uh, to reduce the risk to, to ourselves and to society. We will talk about reducing those risk factors after the break. I just want to go back to Dr. Sivananthan for just a sec. The, the report from Alzheimer's Society of Canada outlines three scenarios in which the onset of dementia in Canadians is delayed by one, five, or ten years. Explain this aspect of the report for us. Sure. Um, So very much reflecting on um, what Dr. Black and Dr. Reitman just mentioned, what we wanted to do was, assuming we could delay dementia by a year, and there could be a range of reasons. So in the report, it was a statistical model. Um, It could be risk reduction lifestyle factors. It could be a therapy that becomes available at some point. But what would happen if we could delay dementia by just one year in terms of the overall accumulation of cases? And what we found was that it would result in, in half a million cases being reduced by 2050. So that means half a million Canadians would not develop dementia. Now, they might pass away from other diseases or um, there might be other reasons for, 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 why they, for, for why they pass, but it was just the delay of one year. And then you can imagine as you delay five and ten years, et cetera, it gets more and those numbers become much larger. But it all ties back for us and the message of hope in the report around those lifestyle factors that 
can contribute significantly to being able to reduce those overall numbers. All right. We're going to talk about that message of hope and reducing our risk factors for dementia and Alzheimer's as we age. On the other side of the break, I'm with Dr. Saskia Sivananthan from the Alzheimer's Society of Canada, Dr. Sandra Black at Sunnybrook Health Sciences Centre in U of T, and Dr. Bill Reichman at Baycrest. Uh, If you'd like to call in, a very important topic for all of us as we age, numbers are 416-360-0740 or 1-866-740-4740. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Fight Back with Libby Snymer on Zoomer Radio with guest host Jane Brown. We're talking about the latest Alzheimer's Society of Canada report, which projects one million people with dementia by 2030, which is a 65% increase, and 1.7 million cases by 2050. However, it comes with a proviso that we can head off impending dementia by public uh, by having public campaigns, advertising campaigns to educate people on how to reduce their risk factors, and then by having us all embrace these philosophies. Dr. Saskia Sivananthan is with us. She is Chief Research Officer at Alzheimer's Society of Canada. Dr. Sandra Block, Black sorry, is a Professor of Medicine Neurology at Sunnybrook and U of T. And Dr. Bill Reichman is President and CEO of Baycrest. Dr. Sivananthan, uh, since it's, it's your report, uh, the headline, Canada Needs Bold Action to Head Off Impending Dementia Care Crisis. Expand on that for us. Absolutely. Um, we know what the numbers are. We've been hearing about these numbers, and we're now seeing the projections into 2050. We've also seen the impact on the health system. We know our long-term care systems are stretched thin to breaking, and the same with our home care. And this is where most people who are living with dementia need support. But dementia is not inevitable, and I think this is the key message here. Most people think, well, my mom had it, my grandmother had it, and it means I'm going to get it, so there's nothing I can do. And that's not the case, and that's the central point of the report. Research has really moved us forward in understanding risk factors related to dementia and the ways in which we can reduce our overall risk of dementia. Um, and, and it continues to move forward. Uh, one of the things that I think is really helpful for people to understand is that it takes multiple interventions. It's not just one thing. It's multiple lifestyle changes. And even small changes can have a really long-term impact. So the report identifies 12 actions for a healthier brain that you can start at any age. And there are studies ongoing right now, one of which is partially funded by the Alzheimer's Society of Canada. It's called the 10 Thumbs Up Study which is researching exactly this sort of information. Right. Do- Dr. Black, let's let's talk further about the nuts and bolts of this. Uh, age and genetics we cannot change, but there are many modifiable aspects to our lifestyle that we can change today, right? Absolutely. And the, one, uh, the ones that I would emphasize, first of all, are the vascular risk factors like high blood pressure, high cholesterol and diabetes, all of which can be managed much more effectively now and are hugely important to identify early in life and treat as needed because they're very effective drugs now. Also, physical activity is within all of our power for most people if, if, if you actually have the, the fortune to have, be physically able. But there is uh, a great importance in physical activity, even just daily walking, but also aerobic exercise is very important. Around 7,000 steps a day was shown in people in their 40s and 50s to have beneficial effects in the brain in their 60s and 70s in some studies that were done. So that's just walking. And then there's the importance of sleep and sleep apnea needs to be identified and treated because you need restorative sleep during deep sleep. Your brain is getting rid of amyloid and other garbage. And if you don't get that restorative uh, cycle, then you begin to accumulate it more. Mm -hmm. And also, um, if you are apneic, uh, that means you stop breathing, then you get an adrenaline response, which wakes you up, makes you not have as, you know, kind of proper sleep. 
and also can cause high blood pressure and and stroke and heart attacks. So these are all things that need to be identified at a young age and need to be aware of. And then social engagement and having um, things that you enjoy doing, cognitive stimulation as part of the Canada Thumbs Up, for example, as well as physical activity and uh, awareness of diet. It's a trial that's uh, part of the Canadian Institute for Health Research, the Canadian Consortium for Neurodegeneration and Aging. Uh, the headquarters is actually at Baycrest, and so um, this is a candlewide trial that's part of a worldwide movement trying to get people to actually do this more actively and then show how it's beneficial. The other thing I should say is that we are now in a new era of being able to know you have some of these proteins, so you now can measure in the blood proteins that tell you that you have Alzheimer's disease. They're not quite as good as spinal fluid, but they're much more easily available. And those are the kinds of things that may begin to guide us very specifically with respect to actual treatments. And then there are prevention treatments as well as interventions going on with antibodies and other interventions to try and see if one can control the deposition of the amyloid and the destruction that it's doing along with the other protein, the tau. And those are, um, those are actively underway. Even in, in normal people now, they're trying out these trials to see if you can prevent the development of symptoms. So we're in a whole new era, mm-hmm. but we need primary care. We need teams of people all to be kind of working together to make this uh, be something we attack, just like we've done stroke. We've made a huge difference in stroke. We need the same sort of effort, and primary care is hugely important in this context. Dr. Reichman, talk to us about what's happening at Baycrest, uh, because you know when I saw Socially Active, I thought of Baycrest right away because of what you do for people there and bringing them together and, and keeping them, keeping their brains active. Can you speak to that? Well, I think, um, yeah, as Dr. Black said, um, you know, it does start with the scientific effort um, leading to knowledge that will then inform public health campaigns. And sure, social recreational engagement is critically important. Combating loneliness or isolation in older people um, can also help to mitigate uh, the risk for dementia, as well as uh, some of the other health and lifestyle interventions that that, uh, my my colleagues on this panel have, have discussed. Uh, at Baycrest, as Dr. Black said, um, we are um, going to be the headquarters for the, the national dementia prevention um, research effort uh, through the CCNA, the Canadian Consortium on Neurodegeneration on Aging. Uh, Dr. Black is a, a seminal a contributor to, to Canada's uh, dementia research effort. Uh, and um, this uh, being headquartered at Baycrest will be led by Dr. Howard Cherko through the new Kimmel Center for Brain Health uh, and Wellness. So we're all uh, quite optimistic that uh, Canadian scientists um, will make an important global contribution to, to the prevention literature and thus to the, the well-being of everybody who can benefit. Um, so um, at, at Sunnybrook, uh, through Dr. Black's work, uh, through other um, research centers across the country, including a collaboration in Toronto, the Toronto Dementia Research Alliance. We're working across organizations uh, to marshal our best thinking to try to improve the health of all of all Canadians uh, at risk for dementia and and those uh, suffering. But the but the last thing I'll say about this, which I which I think is so important, is uh, aside from the research effort and aside from what individual organizations like like Baycrest um, can accomplish alone or in collaboration, is we can't forget that back in 2018. Um, the Canadian government did form a ministerial advisory board uh, on dementia to advise the federal government uh, on what can be done uh, by Canada to improve the health of Canadians as well as contribute to the global cause. And then that led in 2019 to a national dementia strategy. Uh, and, and I think what's really critical is not to try to reinvent the wheel here. We do have a national dementia strategy. It has critical pillars, and it needs to be invested in. Uh, and many of the things that we're talking about that can be done based on this most recent Alzheimer's Society report are embedded within that national dementia strategy. But it needs to be pursued and it needs to be invested in. Uh, and I don't think we can lose uh, sight of, of that. And I, I'm sure, Saskia, you and, and, and you, Sandra, would agree with me about this. Yeah. Sure. 
Saskia, uh, Dr. Sivananthan, um, yeah, let's go over to you because uh, we're running out of time here. But in terms of embracing change in lifestyle and reducing risk of dementia, or at least putting it off, us having this conversation today could have a wide-ranging ripple effect. And I mean, in the same way that we all learned back in the 70s and 80s that smoking was bad for us and caused lung cancer, it's, it's really a very similar kind of approach, isn't it? It is. It's the same idea, which is really raising the public's awareness overall about a lot of these key factors and that they are changes that you can make any day. You can make it now. And they might be small changes that take time, but over time you'll build to the bigger changes. And I think the bigger point around broader public health awareness, of course, the Alzheimer's Society of Canada Um, We work across the country to raise that awareness through public health campaigns. But the National Dementia Strategy that Bill just mentioned has that work embedded in the strategy. And one of the key recommendations that, that the report makes is it really goes into recommendations for the federal government, provincial government, municipal, as well as for individual Canadians. And our call to action for the federal government is to fully fund the National Dementia Strategy and to implement it so that we can see these sorts of success measures, because this is what the Public Health Agency of Canada is so good at doing, that broader awareness and building that education that Canadians need to have. Dr. Black, I have just a minute left. Is there something you would like to add before we wrap up today? No, I agree with all of this, but one other point I want to make, which was uh, sort of partly referred to by Dr. Um, uh, uh, Reichman is, you know, deafness, subclinical deafness has now emerged as also a risk factor for dementia. And that's something I think we need to pay a lot more attention to because that's another fixable condition, especially in men who may, may not be so interested in hearing aids. But that's another very important point. But I think what we really have to do is we have to mobilize as teams of professionals. It's not just doctors. Also, the caregivers are key to the welfare of the individual. We need social work. We need um, different specialties of medicine. We need family practice. We need occupational therapists. We need teams. And that's worked well in the area of stroke. And I think we need to be thinking more in a multidisciplinary fashion how and in what way we can uh, really kind of face this tidal wave, which is coming because of our our aging population. Well, we have begun the conversation, uh, which will continue, obviously, in the coming uh, months and years and decades. I thank you all for your time today. Thank you. Thank you for having us. Thank you. Dr. Sandra Black is Professor of Medicine Neurology at Sunnybrook Health Sciences Centre and U of T. Dr. Bill Reichman is President and CEO of Baycrest. And Dr. Saskia Sivananthan is Chief Research Officer at Alzheimer's Society of Canada. Jane, for Libby, I will be back with you again tomorrow. Bob Comsick and the news coming up next. And then the number one's at one. I think Eva D is back. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.